What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. My bounty is as the boundless as the sea. My love as deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite. Did my heart love till now? Forswear its sight, for I ne'er saw true beauty till this night. O Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Thus, with a kiss, I die. I'm sure you recognize these words from the great play of the 1500s, Romeo and Juliet. In fact, if you aren't familiar with it, William Shakespeare is the one who popularized it and kind of rewrote a couple different things that brought in together two fantasy characters by the name of Romeo and Juliet. And, and it is probably per, perhaps the, uh, considered the most famous love story in all of history, which ends in tragic turns. You see, the love affair between the two starts when the two see each other for the very first time. And despite being from two feuding families, and despite all odds, they fell in love, they got married, and it led, unfortunately, to a massive bloodshed with the death of Juliet's cousin. And after her cousin's death, Romeo gets banished, and then Juliet fakes her death, and somehow Romeo gets false news about her death, and he realized he could not live without her, and so he goes to her alleged tomb and dies. Unfortunately, Juliet, the story goes, wakes up and hears all this that went on, and her heart is so torn and broken, and she goes and finds Romeo's dead corpse and joins her lover in death. Today, as we think about love, we know this is just a fantasy story with Romeo and Juliet. And perhaps that love story, it doesn't compare to a greater love story that we know about. And it's a love story found in the book of 1 John. My friends, today, I want to share with you not just about love, but who love is. And God is love. In fact, two times in our passage, in verse number 8, and then down in verse number 16, three words that, that really stood out to me like a sore thumb in my life as I begin to read this passage. And it's God is love. Would you say that with me? God is love. Would you shout it as loud as you can? God is love. My friends, that is the message our world needs now more than ever. It's that the almighty God who gave us his word, who left his throne and inhabited humanity, loves us in such a way that not even Romeo and Juliet's story can even compare. Not even your love story between your spouse, your husband, your wife can even compare to God's love story found in the book called the Bible. Today, if you could literally walk away with anything besides these three words, God is love, I want you to leave with this thought today. God is love 
and his love is the greatest love. God is love and his love is the greatest love. In fact, I could also change it and say this. God is love and his love is the perfect love. There is no love that compares to God's love. So many times throughout the canon of scripture from Genesis to Malachi, from, Gen- from Matthew to Revelation, we see God displaying to humanity his great love. And so my question that I've been wrecking or rattling in my mind the last week or so is, what does this text, what does verse 7 to verse 21 reveal to us and teach us about God's love? And today, that's the question I want to address today. I want to share with you three thoughts today about God's love from our passage. And listen, what I'm about to share with you today is not my opinion. These are the divine oracles of God. And I believe that we are called to display God's love. But the first thought today comes from verses 7 and down through verse 11. Look at this. In these verses, we read that John is writing about God's love. But but check it out now. God's love has been extended to all creation. God's love has been extended to all creation. Just very briefly, for for the sake of uh, of maybe you've forgotten or maybe you're here and you've never heard a message from the book of 1 John. John is writing this book sometime between the years of 90 and 95 A.D. Just before he is exiled to the island of Patmos, here he is writing this letter that God gives to him by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's combating all these different things, but he has two main points in his book. The first one is God is light. And the second one, God is love. And in chapter 4, he, is, he puts on his boxing gloves and he goes to war, revealing to humanity and Satan himself that God is love and nobody else is considered to have that kind of love. But as I read verses 7 through 11, I think about this first thought. God's love has been extended to all creation. Now check out verses 7 and 8. Here's a thought I want to share with you. Extending God's love is personal. It's on a very personal level. It's on an intimate level. Look at this. The Bible says, beloved, let us love one another. In other words, because God has loved us, we have been called to love one another. And, and remember, the book of 1 John is a, almost like a book that has circular reasoning written all over it. John is circling from this subject to this subject to this subject and back to this subject and back to this one and this one. And so here we see this this section might sound repetitious to you. And it's because it is. Because the book of 1 John is reiterating this concept of love. And now we have been loved by God in such a personal level. We are to extend that love to others. But, But check it out now. It goes on to say, for love is of God. Love did not create God. Love did not make God. God created love because God is love. And it goes on to say, and everyone that loves is born. This word born, it gives this idea of procreation. A husband and wife comes together and they have a child. But here it gives a sense of a spiritual birth. And that if you have been born from God, then you intimately know God and you are going to display God's love. Remember, there's three tests in this book. You have a doctrinal test. Do you believe that Christ is the son of God? You have a moral test. Are you obeying and living by the commands of Christ? And then there's a social love. Are you displaying the love of Christ? And then check it out now, verse 8 says, He that loves not knows not God. This word for know right here in our passage, it's the intimate personal knowledge that has been experienced. 
And so here, the point John is making as he's reiterating this thought from previous text is that if you don't love others, you don't love God. I don't know how else to say it. That if we refuse to love our neighbors as ourselves, then we are displaying that we do not love God first and foremost. Extending God's love is personal. In order for us to ever extend God's love outside these walls and to other people in our life, we have to first experience it. But check it out now. As we read verses 9 and 10, I thought about this. Extending God's love is not just personal, but it's universal. Notice verse 9. I love this verse. In this was manifested. This word manifested, this means that it's been declared and revealed openly for all to hear. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. And check it out now. Here's the gospel. Here's the gospel in one simple verse. Because God, this word is theos, and it means the supreme divine being. There is no other God besides this God. And it says, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world. That means he came and he indwelt humanity. He was born of a virgin, the Bible speaks about 2,000 years ago, in that little town, Bethlehem, in that manger. And he lived that sinless life of about 33 years, and he went to Calvary's cross. And the Bible says that when he died there, he did it for you and he did it for me. That we might live through him. That we might have a life. But now look at verse 10. I love this verse. This explains what the reasoning was for Christ to come. It says, herein is love. This is, in other words, this is a perfect picture and display of what love is. Not that we love God. Now, let me pause right here. In and of ourselves, we don't have the capability of loving God. It goes back to the garden in the book of Genesis. In fact, man, when man fell from God, we went on a course on a highway that was running far and fast away from God. And until God intervenes, there's no way we can even attempt to love him. And there's nothing in us that, that, that in a sense, would want God to even love us. I don't, I don't see anything in me. I'm contaminated by sin. But it says here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation. Would you say that word with me? Propitiation. Say it again. Propitiation. One more time, please. Propitiation. I know it sounds fancy. I know we talked about it before. But back in 1 John chapter 2 and verses 1 and 2, the Bible uses this word. And Paul uses this word, also a similar word. Uh, the same word in our English Bible, but a similar word in the Greek language. And it carries the idea that when, when Jesus became the propitiation, he came to... To take away our guilt of the sins that we've committed and to take the judgment of God that we should have received and to satisfy it through his son on the cross. And it says here, for our sins. But notice here, it says, I get this idea that extending God's love is universal. In other words, not, not universalism, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, that God's love has been extended to all humanity. Now, I know not all humanity is going to come to faith, and we know not all humanity is written and recorded in the last book of life, but all humanity has seen and has handled and has re been revealed to them that God loved them in such a way in time past that he sent his son, and that all we have to do is cry out to him for salvation. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Here it says in chapter 2, verse 2, that he is the propitiation. In other words, he, he removed our guilt and he satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. And then it goes on to say, and not necessarily just for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, here's the atonement. I know people debate about it all the time. You got the Calvinist over here, the extreme Calvinist, the extreme Arminian over here. And so let me try to just share with you my one sentence that I like to describe as the atonement. Christ's atonement is sufficient for all, but only efficient for those who believe. And I believe that when we gather all these verses together about God's love and about the sins and about all these different things, we know he tasted death for every man. We know that he made it possible for those to come to faith, but we know that until God intervenes and begins to pull and it begins to tug our hearts, we will not believe. And so here, it gives a sense that extending God's love is universal. That God displayed to all the world his great love. And that in a similar sense, we are called to also share this love to all the world. We are not called just to stay in America and show God's love here. We are called to go to Canada. We are called to go to South America. We are called to go to Asia and Africa and Australia and Europe and, and every continent, every area, every region, every place and display God's great love for this world. Because listen, we don't know whose name is recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. We don't know who is going to come to faith in Christ or we're called to share it to all. But now check it out. Now look at verse 11. It says, beloved, a similar word that he uses so often now in verse 7, now in here in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, isn't that amazing? He did. He showed that. And if God so loves us, check it out now. It says, we ought. Say ought with me. Ought. This word literally means that it is our obligation. That we have to do it. There is no option. We also ought to love one another. Extending God's love is personal, it's universal, but check it out now. Extending God's love is congregational. God has called us to love each other. God has called you to love your fellow brother, and God has called you to love your fellow sister. He says this, if we have experienced this love, and if this love has been extended to us in such a way, we don't have a choice here. We've got to love others around us. And, and, and so far in, in 1 John, of course, he's writing to believers and he's saying that, hey, if you're a part of God's church and you are a part of his believers in the family of God and you're not willing to love those in the household of faith, how can you even love God and how can you love those who are not even inside these four walls? So this love is to be extended at a personal level, at a universal level, and at a congregational level. You see, one of the greatest hindrances to the testimony of the gospel is when God's people at this church or some other local church is unwilling to love each other. God is love. And his love is the greatest love. So far we've observed that his love has been extended to all creation. But, but, but check it out now. Here's a second thought about what this text teaches us about God's love. Verses 12 through 16. I want to share this with you. God's love has been experienced by his congregation. In other words, his church. God's love has been experienced by his congregation. 
the people of God, we have experienced God's love. Now look at verse 12. When I first read this verse, I thought to myself, why in the world is this first sentence even here? As I began to read it over the years in my life as a believer, I thought to myself, this verse is like totally random. It says, no man has seen God at any time. Okay, what in the world does this have to do with God's love? Well, in fact, the more I dug deeper, the more we see the, the profound wisdom of John and how connected this sentence is with God's love. But, but before I get into that, let me share this with you. As I read verse 12, I think about this. You will express love when you've experienced God's love. You will express love when you've experienced God's love. Now this phrase here, no man has seen God at any time. We have not seen God. I have not visibly with my own two eyes seen God. And if you think you have, my friend, you are incorrect. You're wrong. You haven't seen God. In other words, you haven't seen God in his full glory and splendor and majesty. Remember back in the Old Testament, we have a couple of characters who almost saw him or in a sense kind of saw him like we see him right now. And God had to hide his face from Moses. He had to turn him around. And here, I came across a commentator by the name of Daniel Aiken. If you've never heard of him, he's a really, really great scholar. But, but listen to these words when he comments on this thought. No man has seen God in his unveiled essence, glory, and majesty. Indeed, we are incapable as finite, sinful creatures of looking on God. It would certainly be our death. He can be seen, however, in the lives, in the lives excuse me, of those who demonstrate his love to others. So check it out now. Jesus, we know, came. He was the second person of the triune God, and he lived a sinless life. And there he said, he that seen me has seen the Father. But when Jesus came, we know that he was man and God. But when he came, he did lay aside some of his divinity so that he could accomplish what he was called to do, and that is to go to the cross. And here we know that Jesus is, is gone. And sometime between 30 and 33 A.D., he he ascended up to glory. And now John is writing between 90 and 95 A.D., so 60-some years after Jesus is ascended, we see John is saying, hey, listen, nobody's seen God in his full glory right here. But the way that you can, the way that the world can see God is through people who call themselves believers expressing God's love to others. And that's why that phrase is there. That's why no man has seen God at any time is there. Check it out now. Right after this sentence, it says, if we love one another, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. This word perfected, it doesn't mean the idea of flawless perfection. It means mature completion. That is, when we begin to love others the way that God has loved us with that selfless, sacrificial, sympathetic love, then we know that we have reached the, a level of maturity in our walk with God and our understanding of his love. But now look at verse 13. Not only you, you or we will express love when we've experienced God's love, but check it out now. In verse 13, you will possess the spirit when you've experienced God's love. I know that many of these things have been reiterated a few different times in this letter. And I like what one person said. They said, repetition is the mother of all learning. 
And I think God is inspiring John to continue to repeat himself over and over again with these ideas about loving our brothers and sisters and about how you possess the Holy Spirit and then you will show God's love because we need to be reminded of this. Look at verse 13. It says, Hereby we know that we dwell in him or abide in him or he abides in us. This same word, this is the intimate knowledge that's been experienced personally. Because he has given to us his spirit. Notice it doesn't say a feeling. Notice it doesn't say an emotional experience. It just says he gives us his spirit. Now, I don't understand everything about the regeneration process, but what I do understand is this, is that the moment I became a child of God, that I accepted Jesus as my Savior, I was born again, I was born from above, and God's Spirit came to indwell me, and then we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. And today, if you have the Spirit in you, you are of God. And if you are of God and have the Spirit in you, then you will love people. No matter if they're that family member that you just don't like to be around. No matter if they're that person on the street that is just strung out on drugs, or they're that alcoholic that just can't lay down the bottle, or, or whoever it might be, we are called to extend that love because we possess God's Spirit. But then look at verses 14 through 16. Remember, God is love, and His love is the greatest love. We will express his love. We will possess the spirit. But then, check it out now. You will confess the son when you've experienced God's love. Remember, John was writing to these people who were combating the idea that Jesus was the son of God and God incarnate. Scripture clearly teaches that he was God incarnate. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. It goes on to say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us in John's gospel. In fact, when the Pharisees and scribes revealed or heard that Jesus said, God is my father, they said, hey, this man blasphemes because he is equal with God. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 that he did not think it to be robbery to claim he was equal with God. He said, I and my father are one. All these different things, we realize that when we say Jesus is the son of God, we are confessing and acknowledging publicly and openly, no matter the consequences, that he is our Lord and Savior and he is our God. You say, I'm just not convinced. I need, I need a little bit more. Well, okay, doubting Thomas. <laughs> Remember what he said? When he saw the, the, the imprints of where the, 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 the uh, nails were in his hands, his side, all these different things, he said, my Lord and my God. So let me ask you something. Is Jesus the Son of God to you? Have you confessed him? Have you acknowledged him? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus, what he's done on the cross to save you from your sins? I urge you, today could be your last day. None of us are promised tomorrow. So if you've never cried out to him and said, God, forgive me of my sin, do it today. God is love. His love is the greatest love. His love is the perfect love. And his love has been dis distributed to all humanity. And all we have to do is cry out to him to experience this love. God's love has been extended to all creation. 
God's love has been experienced by his congregation. Praise God, we've experienced that love at an intimate level. But then as I read verses 17 to 21, I have a third thought I want to share with you. God's love is to be expressed by every Christian. God's love is to be expressed by every Christian. Here in this passage, John writes about fear, he writes about hate, and he writes about love. And the first one we want to zoom in and focus on is fear. And I know that we live in a fearful culture these days because of all that's going on in our world. But let me just share something with you. When we are fully embraced in the love of God and we know that, that, that God is in control of our lives and he knows the beginning of our days and the ending of our days, we don't have to fear what pops up or what comes in the news or this, that, and the third because we know God is sovereign. He's on his throne. He's in control. And nothing surprises him. Paul writes and he says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And check this out. As I think about verses 17 and 18, I can't help but say this. There's no room for fear when expressing God's love. No matter if you're going door to door, no matter if you're sharing the love of God with somebody at your workplace, no matter if you're going downtown Roanoke and trying to talk to people there or, or whatever, it's, if it's up at a BBS or on, on Wednesday evenings during church service, whatever it is, we don't have to fear and be afraid because we know that when we share God's love, that's the same love that can transform anybody's life. Notice verse 17, it says, Herein is our love made perfect. In other words, it has, been, it has come to full maturity and completion that we might have boldness. Say that word boldness with me. Boldness. Say it again. Boldness. This gives this idea of confidence. And notice the context here. It is about the day of judgment. So when we don't have to fear the coming day of judgment. We don't have to fear death and standing before God. We know that everybody has an appointment day with death. And let me, just, let me just say this. This is a side note. This is just a footnote. You can take it or leave it. There's nothing I can do to stop my day of departure when God has declared it. There's no medication I could take. There's no diet I could do. There's no workout I could get on. There's nothing I could do to prevent that day of my departure. God knows my last and final day. Now, I don't know that day. And I should not walk around being afraid. Oh, man, I might die today. Oh, man, I need, I need to take all. Oh, man, I need to go to Walmart and buy every vitamin on that shelf there. I need to go. I need to get every shot that, that the doctor has. No, we don't, have to be, we don't have to be afraid to die. God is in control. And there's no room for fear about death and then standing before God. Then, then you have people that, oh man, I'm not, if I die, I got to stand before God and he's going to know about this, 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 and he's going to know about all this other stuff over here. We don't have to be afraid of that. Because if we know that the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all of our sins, we know we're not going to the great white throne judgment where we'll be declared guilty and sentenced to the lake of fire. We know we're going to the, to the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ where we will give an account for how we've conducted our lives as a Christian and be rewarded accordingly. And praise God for that. And here he says that, that we know the day of judgment is coming, but we have confidence because we have an advocate and he is standing in between us and God the Father. His name is Jesus. And check it out now. He goes on to say, because as he is, so are we in this world. And then it goes on to say in verse 18. There is no fear in love, 
but perfect. That is mature, completed love. Cast it out. He cast it out. Have you ever taken a baseball or a football or a tennis ball and just to try to go to a field and just throw it as far as you can? Have you ever tried to do that? Well, I remember years ago we were playing dodgeball at Jamestown at the complex over there and and I got these, we had these little foam balls and I threw that ball so hard I threw my arm out. <laughs> and I'm still reaping the consequences. But here this word cast, it gives the same idea. That you would take a ball, you would throw it as far away as you possibly can. Perfect love, completed, mature love throws out fear. Fear about death, fear about the judgment. But let me just share this with you. Because the next phrase, it talks about, because fear hath torment. Because when we are so consumed by fear, we're enslaved in our minds and in everything around us. That songwriter said, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. Today, because I know I'm in, in Christ, I don't have to fear death. I don't have to fear the judgment to come. But let me just share something with you. If you are not in Christ, you have everything to fear. Because when you stand before a holy, righteous God, he is going to sentence you guilty. The blood won't be covering you. Jesus won't be your advocate. He won't be your attorney and lawyer standing in on your behalf. And you will be sentenced and thrown into the lake of fire for all eternity, separated from the love, grace, mercy, and goodness of God for all eternity, experiencing the wrath, judgment, and fury of God forever and ever and ever and ever. That is something to fear. But if you know Christ... You don't have to fear it. It says this, he that fears is not made perfect in love. In other words, those who are walking around in fear of death and the judgment have not reached the level of maturity that God has displayed in this passage. Now, I know there's times that we all get a little uneasy and we get a little sh uh, shaken and we get unsettled and that's gonna happen. But as a believer, Hear me well, you don't need to fear death or the judgment to come. God has your back. There's no room for fear when expressing God's love. But then check this out, verses 19 and 20. There's no room for hate when expressing God's love. I love verse 19. And in fact, if I have a favorite verse in 1 John, I think, I think right now I'm just deciding it as verse 19 of chapter 4. Read, would you read this verse out loud with me? We love him because he first loved us. That's the gospel. That's good news. That is amazing news. But then check it out now. It says in verse 20, if a man says, or if a man makes a profession and claim, I love God. If he goes around and says, I love God and hates his brother. The Bible says he's a liar. He's a false, he's a falsifier. He has falsified the truth. Have you ever cheated on an exam growing up? I'm ashamed to admit this, but in my biology class, me and my buddy, we had a system, and we cheated on nearly every test in that class. And I, I passed by the grace of God. I got to that SOL, the standard of learning test in the Franklin County Public School System. And I get there, and, and I'm taking the, I don't know, 50, 60 questions. I didn't know any of them. And I got my exam back, and I failed tremendously. 
and had to retake it. And I don't know how, but by the grace of God, I passed that SOL. I said this to say this, that, 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 that just as I should not have passed biology because I cheated my way through, if somebody claims that they love God, but they hate and display that kind of stuff to other people, then they are a cheater in what they're saying. They have falsified the reality and truth. And then, he, then John asks this question. He says, for he that loves not his brother whom he has seen. Check it out now, going back to verse number 12. We have nobody seen God in his full glory and splendor and majesty. But the ones who get to see a taste of his love are the ones demonstrating his love to the world. That is, the world gets to see that. But then it says here that if, if he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? There's no room for hate when expressing God's love. That's why when we see so-and-so right over here in our life, when we see this person over here on the side of the street holding up a sign, when we're driving down the road and that person pulls right in front of us and cuts us off and lays on the horn on us and says it's our fault when it was their fault, we should not display hatred to anybody in our life so that they can experience God's love. As we read verse 21, I think about this. There's only room for love when expressing God's love. I mean, just, just imagine if I walked up to you in Walmart and I said, God loves you. And I turn around and I got a baseball bat and I hit you right in the head. Would you say that's a good display of God's love? Absolutely not. That in a sense would be displaying hatred. Now, I know that's an extreme example. And I hope and pray none of us do that. But here, notice there's a commandment here. It says, and this commandment have we from him that he who loves God Loves his brother or sister also. God is love. And his love is the greatest love. You know, at your wedding, you might have had several different texts of scripture read. The most common one is 1 Corinthians chapter 13. People say that is the love chapter of the Bible. It's interesting, the word love, or in the King James, the word charity, is mentioned eight times. Isn't that something? Eight times in 13 verses. But what's more raveling is the more I study that text and the more I study 1 John, the more I'm inclined to disagree with those who think 1 Corinthians 13 is a love chapter. Because hear me out now. 21 verses in 1 John chapter 4, and love is mentioned 40 times. And in our text alone, from verses 7 through 21, it is mentioned over 20 times. So I have come to the conclusion that 1 John chapter 4 is a love chapter. Because it mentions love so many times. And this is just not any ordinary love. This is the agape love. We love him because he first loved us in this was manifested the love of god toward us because that god sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him herein is love not that we love god but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins god is love what's up guys brian here again 
just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.